Disaster relief involves big dollars. In 2021, research shows that 37% of American donors gave half or more of their charitable contributions to disaster relief efforts. And this year, in the eight months since Russia's invasion of Ukraine, over 1,500 grants have been made worth nearly $1.5 billion. Most recently, where we're getting a lot of questions in the wake of Hurricanes Fiona and Ian, we're seeing a flood of donations pour in. It's heartening to see this kind of empathy in response to human suffering, but the staggering dollar amounts involved raise a key question. What is the most effective way to give towards disaster relief? Hi, everyone. Welcome to Inspired Investing. I'm your host, Claire Gola, head of foundation and institutional advisory at Bernstein. This podcast is where we strive to connect and share insights with listeners like you who are engaged in philanthropy and the broader social sector. Today's guest caught my attention with his recent op-ed in the Chronicle of Philanthropy titled, Typical Post-Disaster Giving Practices Could Hamper Hurricane Ian Recovery. That is a tongue twister. Um, As soon as I finished the article, though, I knew I had to have a conversation with the author, Ben Smilowitz. Ben heads up the Disaster Accountability Project and its sister platform, smartresponse.org. Ben, thank you so much for being here this morning. Thanks for having me. So as I mentioned, your op-ed really intrigued me. It's an area of interest uh, to so many of our clients. It's where we field tons of questions. And you point out that disaster relief often follows this typical pattern that unfortunately, in some cases, has some unintended uh, consequences. And so um, we'll get into that. We'll dig into that. But why don't we start just with your background and your experience on the ground after Hurricane Katrina? Sure. So I was deployed to southern Mississippi after Katrina by the American Red Cross as a volunteer and managed high volume Red Cross sites um, along the Gulf Coast and saw a lot. And we've all heard about how disastrous that response was, and it was a spectacular failure by the agencies and organizations with critical life-saving responsibilities. And it was clear to me that independent oversight was essential to make sure agencies and organizations improved and continue to improve. So I started Disaster Accountability Project to do just that. And we've conducted investigations and written reports about emergency and evacuation planning, public health preparedness. We've advocated for Superstorm Sandy survivors. And then after the Haiti and Nepal earthquakes, we wrote reports about where the funds were going, which organizations were soliciting donations and what they were doing. And it became clear that once these donations are sent to these private nonprofit organizations, it's very hard to hold them accountable. Official reporting requirements are minimal and often very vague, and oversight is limited. And Our investigation found that most donations were getting sent to the large international organizations, and most of these funds were delayed or diverted before only a small amount trickled to the local organizations on the ground. And we found that this is actually very common. We see organizations located far from disasters raising the most, and then after time, sometimes months or even years, those funds may regrant to um, other organizations, and each time a standard overhead is taken off the top. And that regranting process can happen multiple times. And each time a chunk is taken for overhead. And I need to be clear, right? Overhead taken once by an organization delivering services isn't bad. And we don't want organizations to cut corners. And if they're doing the work, they really deserve it. However, 9% shouldn't be taken multiple times on the same donation. Okay, so just one quick question. You mentioned private nonprofit organizations. Clearly, all nonprofit organizations are 
public charities, right? So w- what do you mean by that when you say private nonprofits? Well, they're public charities, but they're also private organizations. They are technically and legally supposed to be accountable because of their tax status, but the reporting requirements are just very, very minimal. And this isn't an attack at all on nonprofits. I think they're essential, right? They fill gaps that government often misses and uh, they have a, a really essential role. We just need to make sure that the right organizations are raising money. Yeah, no, no. I just wanted to clarify that. So that's great. And just to be clear, as you mentioned, look, we're not picking on the Red Cross or you know any large humanitarian organizations because they do a tremendous amount of good across the globe, really. You know, one of the things I'm hearing here is this whole idea of accountability, right, after the fact. And so a lot of these dollars, first of all, are sent out. People see an advertisement on TV or, in, you know, in social media or whatever, like give to this place and folks give to it. They give to household names they trust, right? And then assume that those large entities will then distribute the funds to the workers on the ground, getting the services to, to organizations. So if you can maybe walk through an example of where it may go awry, right? Because clearly, like, you know, somebody sends money to a large humanitarian organization, right? They send, they're assuming and they're trusting that that money goes then to the relief effort. So so a how to help list on CNN, for example, or a list on um, Charity Navigator after an event, right? So the question is how those organizations actually end up on these lists. I believe that at many uh, media organizations, they've got an intern or you know, any staff member just collecting the names of organizations soliciting donations. And everyone's soliciting donations after disasters. Every organization wants a piece of the pie. And frankly, a lot of the times these organizations aren't local for sure. Rarely are the organizations local themselves to the location of the disaster. But not only that, many of these organizations are not even operating in the disaster location when they're soliciting donations. They may say that they're going to send a, a team to do an assessment, and, and that could be a few people to check out what the needs are. And oftentimes, the small print on the donation page or somewhere on the website suggests or says directly that that organization, if they raise too much, is going to save those dollars for a future disaster, which, again, isn't the worst thing. But if an individual or a foundation wants to give to a certain disaster, they should know and and trust that that money is going to actually reach that event. And, you know, this problem is so widespread that only 3% of what is donated is found, you know, and this is well reported, reaches local organizations. And this candid Council on Foundations report that recently came out found only 13% of U.S. philanthropy uh, for humanitarian funding went directly to the organizations based in the country where programs were implemented. I mean, that's that's wild. So I hear you loud and clear, right? So they're broadcasts of here's where you can give or these are household names that, you know, folks know about and they're everyone is doing um, doing their best, right, to try to support a critical effort. And the challenge is, I would argue, maybe not having information before the disaster in terms of who's actually on the ground in these areas. And so, Ben, I'd love you to talk a little bit about smart response, right? So so this is really where your smart response platform comes in, right? Tell us how it works. Exactly. This is exactly why we created the platform. And the idea is that 
you know, a, a report that comes out six months or one year after an event is too late to really guide donor behavior when a disaster happens. And donors need to feel comfortable and have information about which actors are operating locally when they're making those decisions to give. And that's within a week or two weeks or a month of a disaster. And so we built this platform designed to engage organizations, large and small, around the world, and they register. And once they're approved, they share information similar to a common grant application. And it's without all the appeals to emotion. And we're collecting information about what they're doing on the ground, their capacity to deliver services, their history of operating in each location. And that information put together using a very transparent algorithm that everyone can see, basically organizes organizations by geographic area. We even can draw a radius around the disaster impacted area. So prospective donors can see which organizations are operating in the area of a disaster. And then they can support these organizations directly. So we don't want a piece of the pie. We're not charging these organizations a fee to register. We're not part of the transaction process. So organizations are not, you know, getting the money through us. They're not paying us a percentage. So we want to be very transparent and independent of this process so that we can maintain our oversight role while providing donors with really immediate, almost real-time information about which organizations are operating in each location. And then identifying ways and avenues for donors to give directly to those organizations, minimizing intermediaries. And so sometimes it's a community foundation, right? Sometimes it's the local actor is a community foundation that a donor can engage directly, or sometimes it's a local women and children serving organization or disability rights or you know, water sanitation hygiene or food delivery organization, or just most of these organizations are community-based organizations that are going to be around hopefully for years. They've been around potentially for decades and they're hiring locally. They speak the local language. They're sourcing local products. And honestly, the cost of them delivering services is significantly lower than organizations crossing oceans to deliver services. I want to come back to that point in a sec, but before we move forward from the platform itself, I'm curious. So you've been at this a while, uh, growing this platform. How many organizations, roughly speaking, and how many geographies? G- give me a scope of sort of like the size of the platform right now. And when will you feel like you've achieved real success or when's that tipping point? Yeah, so we're building it. It's right now there are about 600 organizations that have self-registered, over 600 that have self-registered from over 60 countries. And Asia is probably the winner in terms of the number of organizations that have registered. Um, Many across the US, some in Africa, um, some in South and Central America, less in Europe, but we do have some organizations in, in countries surrounding Ukraine that are addressing the refugee crisis. And then our goal is to hit 2,000 to really, as a tipping point, where once we reach 2,000, I think that every organization is going to feel like they need to register in order to be included. And really, if you think about it, this is a transparency endeavor more than anything. Because if organizations are registering and sharing information, much of this information is not available anywhere else. And there's an incentive for organizations to share this data if they feel like donors are using it. So it's this cycle. And the more donors that use it and the more organizations that benefit, the more will participate and share more frequent information. And this is really seen as a public good. It's not only a donor 
value uh, website, it, it could benefit actual survivors in in country that are trying to figure out which organizations are present and what services they're providing and what their inventories are. I mean, this is really a, a resource for media on, on improving the reporting. So those how to help lists can be improved, even for coordinating agencies. And we've seen all types of users approach us with interest from people in Haiti to aid organizations trying to figure out who else is operating in a location to journalists that are looking for a contact on the ground in Bangladesh after a, a storm. This is amazing. I mean, there are enormous amounts of applications of this, right? I love it. It's sort of a virtuous cycle created by hopefully FOMO, right? Or the, you know, the fear of missing out for a number of organizations and folks, right? At, at some point, that's the tipping point. One of the things you mentioned um, or you've mentioned in the past is you've listed the data uh, that you're collecting is the number of local staff, right? And sort of like the, um, the number of direct services provided. You've mentioned cultural competence and the importance there. Can you speak a little bit more about the value of cultural competence? Well, yeah, I and mean, we just see disaster relief not working in so many locations around the world. And we hear these stories and they often lead to donor fatigue. And ultimately, not only do we want the immediate response to these disasters to be improved. We want these communities to, to strengthen their resiliency. And these local organizations hire locally. They speak the local language. They understand the communities they're serving. They understand this, the services and types of services that are needed locally. And so oftentimes we see these outsiders come in with um, sometimes different motivations, right? They might be religious, they might be, who knows what the motivations are. And we've seen abuses perpetrated by outside organizations that make the news every once in a while. And I think we have an opportunity to invest in these local communities where the dollar goes a lot further and where, you know, we, we might be able to avoid some of these abuses that we've seen over the years following disasters. I mean, cholera, right? That that arrived in Haiti because of outsiders. And we see reports of sexual abuses by some organizations that, you know, have risen in the news lately. Look, we're not saying these local organizations are perfect. And I frankly suggest that donors distribute their funds across multiple organizations instead of just one. And they don't have to give as much necessarily as they would give to an international organization right away to some of these local organizations. But we're working to help these donors feel more comfortable by also sharing, you know, who else has vetted these organizations on the ground, right? Who else donates to them, right? Who are their partners? And so if a donor sees that one of these organizations is working with an Oxfam or a USAID or a Red Cross, they might feel like, well, if these organizations are receiving money from them, then it's not like they've not been vetted by anyone before. And it might help these donors feel more comfortable engaging them directly. No, that's a really good point in terms of the partnership. I want to go back to this piece on folks flying in, right, to, to local areas, because you know, I'm a money person, right? I'm always you know interested in the financial uh, effects, intended or unintended. And you've described, you know, essentially one of the unintended consequences of some of these uh, efforts being hyperinflation in communities. You want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, there's a term called tide aid, 
where, you know, we spend all this money on aid for other countries, but we end up buying the supplies from our side. And then we bring those supplies to a country and that can, you know, disrupt local um, supply chains, right? The local rice vendor isn't going to sell their rice because it's coming from overseas for free. And then we've now messed up the local economy. So even housing stock, right? Like you have all these people from overseas come in looking for a place and then now rents are going up because they're trying to attract outsiders and, and knowing that they can pay. So we just need to be more careful about how we, how we empower organizations to show up for what they may have good intentions. And certainly the people that are going to deliver the services almost always have really good intentions, but that's not necessarily enough, right? There are actors on the ground that have been working there for decades that know their communities and if we invested in them, then the goal ultimately is to flip the power dynamic, right? So if some organizations from the outside, and we know some organizations on the outside, are providing great value, these local organizations should be in the position of power to decide which outsiders to work with instead of having the outsiders decide which local groups to work with. Or, um, you know, from the perspective of these local organizations, many of them are so cash strapped. They'll work with anybody to get resources, and then the power dynamic is just not, is flipped, and it's not it's not healthy. One question that I'd forgotten to ask earlier is how specifically is is Smart Response different than other search engines out there? Right, like I'm thinking about if you just Google like disaster relief listings or whatever, you know, Charity Navigator pops up, Candid Center for Disaster Philanthropy Map, you know, sort of pops up. Explain some of the differences here. Yeah, so this is data-driven, right? So when you do a search on Google, that's like SEO-driven, right? And so they're paying for ads and it's pay for placement. So if if I wanted to raise money for a disaster, I just create a donation page and make it look like I'm doing something. It Oftentimes those pictures aren't even reflective of the location they're responding to. And then I hire someone to do some great SEO and they get me high search results on Google or whatever search platform. And I could raise a lot of money if I want. Like that's how a lot of this works. And frankly, too many of these lists are, are really based on who's appealing for donations, who's saying that they're fundraising. Um, they have nothing to do with who's actually delivering services or, or whether they've been there before, whether they've got local staff. Even if they say they have local partners, the question is when they're going to actually release those grants to those partners, how much those partners are going to get. They might end up getting only, you know, three to five or 10%, maybe 10, maybe 20%, but that's still not so great. So we need to use real information, real data. And too often that information comes six months or a year or longer after an event about who was there. So that's what Smart Response is offering. It's, it's information about who's actually there now, who is there in the most recent quarter, because we ask organizations to update their profiles every quarter, and organizations with updated profiles rise to the top. You know, organizations with local staff and direct services uh, rise to the top versus organizations that don't have local staff or uh, provide, you know, an indirect service, which would mean like a grant to another organization to provide the direct service. So, you know, I'm not saying that this platform is perfect. I'm sure that there are many ways to improve, and we're certainly open to that. And frankly, we're in the process of building an entirely new site with a new you know, design and 
uh, more questions for these organizations to answer. But we're also creating a lot of hope for these organizations that they're going to get noticed, right? And that the them sharing information is going to bring them value. And so this is really important to be here and to talk about this because we want people to at least check this out, right? Like there's no cost to check it out. This is an open platform for everyone to use. And then we're not even offering to be a part of the transaction. The donate buttons go to each organization directly. And so, Ben, I have to ask, okay, I'm an organization uh, locally uh, in an area that maybe hasn't been devastated by, by a, um, or maybe it has, by, by some sort of natural disaster. How do I get onto this? Where do I go? Yeah, so an organization can, can register on our platform, and then we do a basic vetting. And we're constantly reaching out to organizations. We have volunteers identifying organizations to invite all over the world. And most of the organizations on the platform, I would say, were invited by us because we found them. But then sometimes they'll share information about us on a, in a WhatsApp group or some social media in a country. And then all of a sudden, we have over 60 organizations in Pakistan that have registered or, you know, over 40 in India. And, you know, the goal is to not only have, you know, 40 in India, but have 20 in each state in India, right? The goal is really to scale this tremendously. And so I go to smartresponse.org? Yeah, smartresponse.org. And, you know, we've talked a lot about global. We also have organizations in over 25 U.S. states and territories, um, many in Puerto Rico. And, you know, sometimes if organizations haven't been hit by a disaster recently, they're not exactly thinking about taking the time to share information in case an event does happen. And so sometimes we really do have to try to convince organizations this is worth it. But for those organizations that have experienced disasters recently, they've watched that money fly elsewhere. And this problem is, is as real in Louisiana as it is Bangladesh. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And look, we have hundreds and hundreds of organizations you know, who partner with us directly, right? Have business relationships with us. We want them to reach out to you as well. So um, I think this is really great. So Ben, you've given us a ton to think about today. Let's try, let's try to distill it down, right? Uh, maybe top three takeaways for donors. What would be the first? Well, I think the first is let's be careful using these how to help lists after disasters that are created by anyone without any sort of specific create, you know, criteria, we need to be careful about who's asking for money and whether or not they actually deserve a dime when the disaster happens. They may have a great name. They may be operating in one country or one state, but not in another. And so how do we differentiate in the immediacy of an event? Got it. So it's about the data. So it's really understanding the limitations of search engines, understanding the limitations of these lists that are out there and how they may have been originated. So that's great. And then the second takeaway. Well, we have an opportunity to use location-specific data. So I would really encourage everyone to check out smartresponse.org. And if they see something they like, let us know. Or if there's something that they'd like to see in the future, let us know. And we, we might be able to add, include that and add that. And also, our goal is to grow this, right? We want to go from 600 to 2,000, and we're a nonprofit ourselves. So we'd love to have conversations with, with anybody interested in, in learning more. 
Well, look, Ben, this audience is not shy. So you may get some uh, <laughs> some follow-up so from this, both from, from donors and funders and organizations seeking support. So any final bit of advice, any last pieces of information you'd like to share? No, I think ultimately we need to go back to the, the goal of, of shifting the power and the top-down to bottom-up responses. And to keep in mind this 3%, right now, if only 3% is reaching the ground, we can do so much better. And so if we can raise that to 20% or 40% over the, the coming years, right, that would be a tremendous change in our responses to disasters and our ability to prevent and mitigate future ones. So we're offering one solution. I'd love to hear about others. You know, some call this localization of, of humanitarian funds. We call it that too. We also call it, you know, improving effectiveness or improving transparency and accountability. Yeah, I really appreciate the exposure and, and the conversation today. Yeah, well, thank you. We appreciate all the work you're doing to try to drive more dollars to organizations doing this work on the ground. It's, it's really important stuff. So thank you. Um, it's all we have time for. Ben, thanks for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me. And thank you all for listening. If you would like to learn more on Bernstein's Foundation and Institutional Advisory Services, please see the link in this episode's description. If you enjoyed this episode and haven't subscribed yet to our podcast, please go to the iTunes store, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts to subscribe and rate us. Also, please email us with your thoughts, questions, and feedback to insights at Bernstein.com. And be sure to find us on Twitter at Bernstein PWM.